Welcome to another episode of Whatever We're Calling This, the podcast of comparative literature and cultural studies at the University of Arkansas. Today, we invited Dr. Annie Doucet to talk about the benefits of teaching the history of language. Dr. Doucet is an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas. She holds a master and a PhD in French studies from Tulane University. Well, today we have a special guest, Dr. Annie Duce. Duce, right? Am I Duce, right? You got it. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Uh, Dr. Duce, uh, let's start with the basic stuff. As a graduate student, I'm struggling with my dissertation and putting ideas together and try to produce something. So you already passed this uh, process. So I want to ask you, what was your dissertation about? Okay, great question. Well, since you mentioned that um, you're, you're thinking about what you might want to work on, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context. So um, when I was in undergrad, so we're going all the way back to undergrad, I graduated from a program that was uh, very heavily grammar translation based. Nowadays, our methodologies lean much more towards communicative language teaching. That's not at all the, the kind of program that I graduated from. So when I got to graduate school, I was very, very strong in grammar, phonetics, morphology, linguistics. And while I love, I have always loved literature, I was much more stronger on in the linguistic side of things uh, than in literature. I had to learn how to, to how to conduct literary analysis in graduate school, because that's not really the background that I came from. But it just so happened that the very my very first semester in graduate school, um, I took a history of the French language course and I realized, oh my gosh, this is this is what I have to do. This is the intersection of that literature that I love so much and the linguistics that I'm really good at. Um, so I, I was pretty lucky to have that in my very first semester because I figured out pretty early on what I wanted to, to work on. So when it came time to, to write my dissertation, um, I in my dissertation, I take a philological approach to themes of the heart in troubadour lyrics. Um, now, I, I, I have side note, uh, my specialization is actually Old Occitan, which is the language of the troubadours. Um, so why themes of the heart? If you if you run a, a quantitative analysis, if you have access to the entire extant corpus of the troubadours and you can run it through a distance reading tool like like Voyant, um, you'll, you'll see that in the entire extant troubadour corpus, the word cor, meaning heart, is used 2,481 times. That is more than any other word in the entire extant troubadour corpus. Um, the next high, the, the next most frequently used word is amor, meaning love, which is arguably what the troubadours are most famous for. Um, but cor uh, beats out, heart beats out love. Um, and if you add the flexional S course, that takes us up to, to over 4,000 instances of the word heart in the entire troubadour corpus. 
Um, and so what I was really interested in philologically was this ambiguity inherent to the word course, because with that flexional S at the end, which we find in the nominative singular and the oblique plural, based on the uh, declension system <laughs> of old Occitan, um, it could mean either heart or body. And so I was looking at these instances of muscors, my course, whether it's my heart or my, my body, which as I, I argue in my dissertation came to be understood as myself or my person. In other words, me. Um, so is that me, is that self associated with the heart or with the body? Um, for example, one thing that I found, one of the most famous troubadours, his name was Arnaud Daniel, he really played with that ambiguity. I, I like to think of him as the, the bad boy of Chubador lyrics, even though he, he, there were much worse people. Than <laughs> but in his, in his songs, he, he was very play, mischievous even. Um, in that he plays with this ambiguity so much so that you can have a really courtly reading of the of his songs based on whether based on if you're understanding chorus as heart or a very carnal reading uh, of the song if you're reading chorus as body instead. And um, side note here, um, Arnaud Daniel was beloved by Dante. And he even, Dante even put him, it, he, he meets Arnaud Daniel in Purgatorio. Um, and in fact, Dante admired Arnaud Daniel so much that he's the only character in the entire Divine Comedy that speaks in his own language. So Dante wrote Arnaud Daniel's words in Old Occitan. Um, but we have to point out that Dante placed him on the seventh terrace of purgatory, which is lust. So that shows that Dante knew what was up as well with that ambiguity of, of course and how, how Arnaud Daniel was using it in his songs. Well, that, that's a, a powerful connection between literature and language and body and heart and, and the way how literature is understood. Now, you, you gave us a lot of uh, valuable uh, information and connection, and I will span a lot of buoyant tools, but that's going to be a, a later one because uh, the, the main purpose of this episode is how to teach uh, the history of the language. So then uh, you mentioned uh, literature and language. And in my case, I had the same issue in, in my program where I did my undergrad. Uh, we had a, a different kind of courses. One was for language and the other one was for literature. So I'm kind of curious in your approach, in your methodology, what is the intersection between literature and language? How do you impact students in a positive way that they want to learn the language, but also they appreciate the language because it's not the same, for example, to, to learn Spanish, reading the Miocid, that doing something in a more appealing way. So I don't know if you can tell us a little bit more about your approach. I would love to. It's very interesting that you, you mentioned how there were two different tracks in your program, one for literature and one for language, because um, I had a professor in graduate school who told me something that has stuck with me for years. He said, we teach grammar from, excuse me, culture from the very beginning and grammar to the very end, meaning that even when we move into our upper level classes are more advanced classes where we're teaching our students content. 
we can't forget that we're also teaching them language as well. So that grammar should not be sidelined um, um, for uh, content, but the, the two should be complementary. That's very much my approach in the classroom as well as in my literature. And so I, I've yet to find a way to fully integrate that historical linguistics into my language classrooms. At the moment, I'm using it more for maybe even as mnemonic devices to help students remember certain grammatical rules that may seem arbitrary. <laughs> and let's be honest, French gets a bad rap, right? When it comes to, to arbitrary grammatical rules, arbitrary uh, orthographical rules, French gets a bad rap. But if you know, if you understand the history behind it, it actually makes quite a lot of sense. Um, and so that's what I try to, to get my students of language to understand. And my favorite thing to share, my favorite grammatical explanation to share with them is um, the agreement of past participles in compound tenses. It, it, do, do, does this exist in Spanish as well, Guillermo? Yes. I, if, well, I'm, I'm not an expert on the grammar part, but I, if I'm not mistaken, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. But I might be mistaken, like when, when, when you are mentioning by memory the whole tenses, subjuntivo, presente, pasado, oh, for me at some point it's like doing math. One plus oh. one, oh wow, 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 so it's getting a little. <laughs> yes, I 100% agree, and I think that's why I love it so much. It is like math, it's like solving a formula. Um, and so, so we have we have this uh, agreement with compound tenses. So that's the compound past, the plus uh, the the pluperfect, yeah. uh, the past subjunctive, the past conditional. Where if we have a preceding direct object, we make agreement with the past participle, and it's it, it comes from old French because that past participle evolved as an adjective. So if, for example. Um, I have captured the castle. In old French, it really would have been conceived of, I have the castle. What kind of castle? A captured castle, which is why we make agreement uh, with that, that past participle. Quick question, Dr. You said, uh, with, now you were talking about uh, mnemotechnics uh, strategies. And I remember that when I was studying French, the negation, like ne, verb, pas, we, we did it like with the hamburger. So we know that, that the most important thing was in the middle and there was like a slice of bread and Pat uh, was the other slice of bread. So uh, because you were talking about the history of uh, this past participle, is there any historical background on that negation of ne, the verb pa? I am so happy that you asked because this is another one of my favorite little tidbits to share with students. So in medieval French, the only particle we needed to, to make a negation was that ne. Anything that came after the verb was kind of an emphasizer. And we often emphasized the absence of something, the negation of something, by tagging on a little particle at the end that was something small. So we'll see in Old French, ne mi, not a crumb, ne goutte, not a drop, and the one that it, that has uh, passed, been passed down to us in modern French, ne pas, which means not a step. 
And, you know, in, in medieval French, the only thing we needed was that negative, the, the, was that negative particle, no. And in modern French, we've dropped that no. And really, in spoken French, the only particle we need to make something negative is that pas. Wow, interesting. So now I see the, the whole connection with teaching the history of the language, teaching literature, and of course, making the whole uh, connection to teach a foreign language. Now, uh, you mentioned this part, so I'm curious, what is your current research? Now I, we learn about your dissertation, how you're making that connection, but then what are your future projects or what are you working right now? Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking. So I'm still taking that philological approach to Old Occitan, and most recently my work has involved affect. So taking a philological approach to affect and the history of emotions in Old Occitan. Um, for example, I have a, a, a forthcoming article in uh, the, the journal Tinsel um, that's really invested in that the that philological approach to the history of emotions. Um, and in this article, I look at compound complex words of emotion in Old Occitan, um, specifically uh, joy and ira. That's happy, happiness, and sadness, but not quite. Um, because uh, in Old Occitan, these emotion words, I, I use the word compound. Another word could we could also use is polyvalent. They, they, they have two meanings in one. So this word joy uh, does not express necessarily joy as we understand it, but a joy tinged with sadness, which we might link to, to pasio you know, this, 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 this joy of suffering. Um, and what I found and what I talk about in this article is that this kind of joy is specific to the joy of song, the, the specific to the joy of uh, composing, um, the, the, the joy that we find in the songs of the troubadours. Um, no other happy word like alegranza, for example, means quite the same thing. And we don't see it as often in the songs of the troubadours either. Um, what's interesting about this word joy is that it's often paired with a sad word. For example, one troubadour, Rambaut Darenga, uh, he, he wrote one line, Irats jat zens ma fights trobar, happy sad you make me compose. Um, and this, this adjective that he used, irats, um, the nominal form ira is also one of those compound emotion words because it means sadness, but you can even hear in it that uh, it, it, it evolved from Latin ira irai, meaning anger. Um, and what's interesting, what I found with ira is that even though it's used in conjunction with joy like this, um, it's used much less frequently than joy, and there are many more synonyms for sadness um, that are used more or less interchangeably with with ira. Um, which, you know, if we follow the the advice of the the his, the historian of emotions Barbara Rosenwine, she says one way to to decipher what emotions were valued in certain emotional communities. Dot 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 count words. So, so right. what does that tell us if the, the number of instances of the word joy obviously tells us that that was a strong, uh, strongly valued word in this emotional community or communities of the troubadours, whereas Ida, hmm, maybe not so much. You're right. Now, there's a, a lot of uh, 
analysis on a morphological way on, on, on the repetition of words and you may and you mentioned avoidant uh, tools that for the people who are listening is a, a digital humanities tools that may, maybe how can I uh, define it so um, why do you think graduate students should explore and using different tools like in this case buoyant tools to uh, make something different on their dissertation? So I would say that we're, we're, we're trained, um, as, as scholars, we're trained to, to do close readings of texts, right? But with, and, which is obviously extremely important and an extremely important tool of analysis. But I would argue that so is a, a quantitative analysis that we can we can analyze from a distance reading. And I think that's why these tools are very important. These are tools that can aid us in our distance reading. So we can get a quantitative analysis from these distance readings to inform and influence our qu uh, qualitative reading of our close readings. Um, no, and I, I agree with you in that part because like in my case, that, that's why I wanted to ask you how, how well, what kind of suggestion you will give us. But in my case, I'm using buoyant tools to, to understand how lazy and laziness is described in Jesuit manuscripts. And I found that every single time that they describe indigenous peoples as lazy, it was, a, they had a hidden purpose, which I'm, that's something that I'm trying to elaborate a little bit more on my dissertation, but uh, I don't know if you, you would like to add something else on, on buoyant tools before or well, before going to the next question. Just one last thing, maybe that, that that's super fascinating, Guillermo, by the way. Um, but one last thing that I was gonna mention is one thing that was particularly helpful for me in this, this, this project that I just talked about on affect. Um, one thing that was super helpful and voyant was that I could see which words were used in conjunction with joy, which words were used in conjunction with, with ira. And that way I could see that, yes, while in some instances joy is used, you know, within six words apart from ira, it's also used uh, in conjunction with other words of sadness as well. Nice. Uh, that's the amazing connection and also they they offer uh visualization so for the people who have not used buoyant tools uh well i suggest just to uh google i'm just trying to put it uh, next to the episode so you can get more information about it now uh the last question uh can you tell us a little bit about the old french reading group that uh, you are offering this semester I would be delighted. So uh, we every month we have we meet as an old French reading group. Uh, we meet over lunch to translate short old French texts um, into English. We we're we're a group of faculty and students from diverse departments across campus. Um, there's absolutely no pressure. You can come and just read along and listen. You can practice your pronunciation and read out loud in Old French if you want to. If you don't want to translate, uh, you can just practice your pronunciation and then pass on to the next person. Um, no prior knowledge of, of, of Old French is required. And I would even say no prior knowledge of modern French is re required. I would say that the majority of, of, of our participants do not have any modern French. Um, and it's really exciting to see, you know, many of them are 
experts in medieval Latin. So it's really interesting to be able to learn from them as well to find those connections, how they can figure things out from their knowledge of Latin. Um, we, we, so we translate into English and we, we pause every now and then to talk about certain constructions. I love talking about the dialect and getting the participants to try to figure out which dialect we're reading every month. Um, it, it, it's always a lot of fun. I try to choose interesting or funny or romantic texts and uh, we, we've got a good group, a really lively group. It's always a lot of fun. Please come. <laughs> Great. So after the invitation for the French, uh, old French reading group, uh, and of course, we're celebrating uh, bilingualism and we're offering uh, French courses at the university. So I'm going to try to practice my rusty French with uh, <laughs> Dr. Doucet. And I have two questions in French for you. Bravo. La première question c'est pourquoi as-tu étudié le français? Oh, quelle bonne question. Et bravo, Guillermo. Tu es extrêmement impressionnant en français. <laughs> Uh, pourquoi est-ce que j'ai décidé d'étudier le français? J'ai décidé d'étudier le français tout d'abord parce que je viens de Louisiane. Uh, ma famille est franco-louisianaise, um, c'est-à-dire que ma famille parle un dialecte uh, du français spécifique à, à la Louisiane. Um, nous sommes chrétiens, si, si vous connaissez ce, ce mot, tout le monde. Um, et... Uh, Ma culture et mon héritage, c'est quelque chose qui, qui, qui me passionne beaucoup. Um, J'ai décidé de l'étudier uh, au lycée et après à l'université um, parce que c'était obligatoire d'étudier une langue. Um, et j'ai choisi le français à cause de mon héritage, mais à ce moment de ma vie, je suis tombée amoureuse uh, de la langue. Et, euh, et j'ai décidé de, de continuer de l'étudier et même de ces jours, je continue de, de l'étudier. Oh, ouais, c'est parfait. Deuxième <rire> question. Est-ce que as-tu trouvé un lien émotif entre les Français et ta vie? Ouais, tu, tu as dit quelque chose par rapport à ça et maintenant je, je vais te, te, te montrer mon, mon exemple. Dans mon cas, euh, j'étais wow, un étudiant des langues étrangères. En Colombie, nous étudions l'anglais, le français et l'allemand. Et pour moi, le français a une connexion avec ma famille. J'ai connu mon épouse à l'université. Je l'ai connue à l'Alliance française à Barranquilla. Et pour nous, le français a une connexion comme la, le français comme la langue de l'amour. Dans ton cas, je sais que maintenant, c'est quelque chose qui est connecté à, à ton identité, à l'héritage. Mais est-ce qu'il y a probablement un autre lien émotif avec le français oui, absolument. Um, lié aussi à mon héritage, mais, mais plus personnellement, um, le français était la langue maternelle de mes grands-parents, mais c'était interdit à l'école quand ils étaient enfants. Et, et pour cette raison, ils ont, ils ont subi un, une grande honte en ce qui concerne leur langue. Et pour moi, étudier leur langue, la langue de ma famille, la langue de mes grands-parents, la langue de mes ancêtres, pour moi, c'est comme une revendication de la langue um, pour, euh, pour euh, <rire> qu'est-ce que je peux dire, venger mes grands-parents peut-être. Um, parce que c'est quelque chose 
qui est liée étroitement à notre identité en tant que Louisianais. Euh, oui, c'est peut-être un peu grandiose. <rire> non, non, c'est parfait parce que, euh, comme on, nous avons écouté dans les derniers épisodes, la langue et l'identité euh, sont connectées étroitement. Non, mais merci à Dr. Doucet pour votre temps, pour l'attention et bonne journée. Merci bien, c'est un grand plaisir. Well, it looks like the episode is over. Thank you to the program of comparative literature. Thank you to Dr. Doucet for accepting the invitation. And I hope you join us next time in another episode of whatever we're calling this. Nos vemos.